This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 14th, 2004. Pinnacle Airlines flight 3701 on Bombardier CRJ200 with only two people on board has lost both engines and is falling to the ground from cruising altitude. The pilots, who seconds ago had been celebrating reaching an altitude of 41,000 feet, are now desperately trying to restart their engines. They declare an emergency and bizarrely tell air traffic control that they've only lost one engine. For 21 minutes, the pilots struggle to restart their engines before ultimately crashing into the ground, killing them both. How can a four-year-old plane suddenly lose both engines and fall from the sky? Is this indicative of a more widespread issue? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. We're back with another episode before we get into it. Guess what I'm going to do, Chris? Uh, you can tell people to follow us on social at Black Box Down Pod. That's it. Twitter and Instagram. And uh, if you check out our link tree there, you can see our links to store.roosterteeth.com where we got some merchandise. It's not the holidays anymore, but we still have merchandise. So if you could go take a look <laughs> at it. Oh, also in the link tree, you can see our animated aviation explanation videos, which they've been received pretty well. I'm pretty yeah, happy with that. Very like, well. Like five to seven minute long animated videos that highlight little bits and pieces from our episodes that may be difficult to picture in your head in an audio format. It's a way to like take a look at visually. And you can check that out on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash blackboxdown. But like I said, also in the link tree. Also, if we're able to make more of them, we're wondering if you listening have any episodes or moments that you would want to see animated um, and explained in more detail. Yeah, just uh, send us a message on social media or just tweet at us or, you know, DM us or whatever. And let us know. Yeah, we're you know we. I'm not, it's no guarantee that we're gonna make more, but <laughs> it's possible there might be more. If you go and watch it and tell other people to watch it, the chances of us making more are only better. Oh, that's a that's an excellent point, Chris. Okay, back to the uh, episode at hand, the incident at hand, as it were. This is one I've been wanting to talk about for a while, uh, but I'm glad we waited. I felt like this one is. It's gonna. It's it's not that it's necessarily complicated. It's that it's bizarre, and uh-huh. I think it's gonna build on a lot of the things we've talked about in the past. Are gonna maybe kind of come to play in this particular incident. I like bizarre. Yeah. Um. There's a lot going on here. Pinnacle Airlines. It's uh. It was a regional airline. Uh huh. They operated regional services for Northwest Airlines. Okay. And we've talked about this before. It's like the smaller jets that get you to a hub, where then the big airline flies you in a bigger plane. So this isn't a huge plane, but it's not tiny. It's one, it's, it's, if you live in Austin, if you've flown to, you know, Houston on United, or if you've taken like a small American Airlines flight, mm-hmm. this, this is the kind of plane you fly. You know, it's a Bombardier uh, CRJ. So what, what would be the max capacity of passengers? Like 50? 50, yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. yeah. This would be a 50 passenger plane. I've flown to Dallas and Houston before, so I've seen <laughs> Yeah, you, you know. Uh, American Airlines flies 737s a lot for that route to Dallas, but sometimes you might, you'll see this, like, if you're flying to a small town somewhere, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll, you'll fly this kind of plane. So this particular flight was going from Little Rock, Arkansas to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Like we said, October 14, 2004. The flight was crewed by Captain Jesse Rhodes, who was 31 years old with 6,900 flight hours. And First Officer Peter Cesars, who was 23 with 761 flight hours. The plane was four years old. Like we said, a Bombardier CRJ-200 had 10,168 hours and 9,613 cycles. And oddly enough, the pilots were the only people on this plane. There was no one else on the plane. Just no one bought tickets and they had to get 
the plane to the other place or were they just like transporting it or what? They were transporting it. You're right. Okay. They called it a repositioning flight. What had happened was this plane was supposed to take this flight earlier in the day. It was supposed to go from Little Rock to Minneapolis with people on it. But when they, you know, were getting ready to take off, there was a mechanical issue. Uh-oh. So the plane had to go back to the gate and the people still had to fly. They flew on another plane. Mechanics had to come out, fix this plane. But, you know, they still needed this plane to be in Minneapolis because the next morning it needs to take people from Minneapolis to the next leg. Okay. So, you know, the airline gets two pilots to come in and all they got to do is just take the plane from uh, Little Rock up to Minneapolis. That way it's there for the next flight it's supposed to take in the morning. Okay. I mean, it happens. It's not a common thing. Obviously, airlines don't like flying empty planes. <laughs> There's no advantage to them for doing that. But in order to fulfill their obligations for further flights down the line, the planes have to be in the right place. And you hear about this in the news sometimes, like when storms disrupt the aviation mm -hmm. industry, it's like, oh, there's bad weather in Chicago and now flights all over the country are canceled. It's like, well, yeah, you know, delays in one airport has a cascading effect because those planes need to keep moving. They need to be in other cities, you know, for, for, yeah. for future flights. And I'm just thinking about how awful of an organization that system. Honestly, that I, I would love to work in that. I would, <laughs> that's like a dream job for me. It's like <laughs> operations manager for like an airline, you know, working to, to ensure all that stuff like, gets taken care of. It just sounds like stressful being like, oh, this plane's out of order. Now we just got to reroute this. Now we got people here. We, you know, just like trying to move everyone's things around. Yeah. And, yeah. To me, it's almost like a video game where you've got like limited resources and you're like moving them around, trying to get everything in the best position. Well, th that makes it sound a little more fun. <laughs> that's the way I think about it. Maybe that's why it sounds fun to me. Uh, <laughs> so, like I said, they were supposed to take off earlier in the day. The plane had to get fixed. So it ends up taking off in the evening. The, 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 this plane departs from Little Rock at 9.21 p.m. Central Time. Mm -hmm. About five seconds after takeoff, when the airplane was at an altitude of 190 feet above the ground... The flight crew moved the control column to 8 degrees nose up, causing the airplane's pitch angle to increase to 22 degrees, which resulted in a vertical load of 1.8 Gs and a climb rate of 3,000 feet per minute. Where are they in the sky right now? How high up? 190 feet. This is five seconds after takeoff. They've oh. literally just taken off. They pulled back on the control column, you know, causing a, a significant increase in the pitch angle. And we talked about another incident recently. Remember that Air Midwest flight that... It climbed too much. The nose went too high after takeoff, and it ended up crashing. Obviously, you don't want to do this. This is this is nuts. Yeah, that's why I was like, it sounds. Are they doing like a joyride? It's just me and you. Let's 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 uh, see what happens. You know, you are not too far from the truth, Chris. So, unfortunately, Ooh. in this incident, the cockpit voice recorder only captures the last thirty minutes of the incident. So, we don't know what the pilot and first officer are saying to each other at this time. Uh -huh. But it's speculated, uh, and we'll get into it a little later, but it's pretty strongly speculated that since no one was on the plane, they wanted to see what the plane was capable of. And they were going to do a little bit of joyriding. Wow. So, you know, like I said, they, they pull back, causing this crazy um, angle of attack, and immediately the flight data recorder records the stick shaker and stick pusher activate. And, you know, th their plane noses back down to decrease its pitch angle. Uh -huh. And then it gets a vertical load drop of 0 0.6 Gs. And we've talked about these before, the stick shaker and stick pusher. Stick shaker, you know, if a stall is imminent, the stick shaker starts shaking the control column like a haptic feedback almost to let the pilots know, hey, nose down in order to avoid a stall. And then the stick pusher actually pushes the nose down a little bit to try to prevent a stall. So it's like, hey, stop what you're doing. Yeah, it's like, hey, pay attention. You need a nose down or we're going to stall. So about five minutes later at about 9.26 p.m., they're at an altitude of 14,000 feet. 
the flight crew engaged the autopilot and then they changed seats in the cockpit for some reason. Again, the cockpit voice recorder isn't active yet. It only gets the last 30 minutes of the incident. But for some reason, they switched seats. How long of a flight is this supposed to be? I don't know off the top of my head. I'm going to guess two hours, maybe. Okay. If we're just speculating, are they like, well, let's try and do this. Do you want to try it? Or like, they're just, if they're testing the plane, are they taking turns? Maybe, or maybe like the first officer had never sat on the left side of the plane. It was like, hey, let me sit over there. He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? There's no one on the plane. Let's do that. Okay. And by the way, I just looked. Yeah, the flight from Minneapolis to Little Rock's about an hour and 55 minutes. Okay. But yeah, again, copy voice recorder wasn't recording, so we don't know definitively why, but they switch seats, which mm-hmm. is super bizarre. And uh, then, you know, after they switch seats, they disengage the autopilot again. At that point, they're about 15,000 feet. At 927, which is a minute after they switch seats, the plane was in level flight at 15,000 feet. And then a second pitch-up maneuver was recorded on the flight data recorder. The flight crew moved the control column 3.8 degrees nose up, which caused the airplane's pitch angle to increase to 17 degrees with a vertical load of 2.3 Gs. And when we say that, it means like they pull back so much that it's like they feel like the G-force is pushing them down, like 2.3 times gravity. Which is a lot. Which is a lot. Yeah, you would weigh over double your weight. You don't ever feel that on a normal plane. No. Like, (laughs) God, no. Yeah, that that would be... That's like being on a roller coaster. Oh, yeah. But what flight level are they supposed to be at? I mean, 15,000 is what they're at. They're still climbing. They're at 15,000 feet. They were climbing up. I believe at this point, I'm going off the top of my head. I don't have it in front of me. I believe they were cleared up to about, I want to say 33,000, if I remember right. Okay. So most roller coasters will probably give you around, let's say like like not a, you know, it's like a typical roller coaster, right? Like nothing crazy will give you around two Gs of force occasionally you might get one that gets up to 4G if it's like really extreme. Uh-huh. And the most ever on a roller coaster was 6.3. So, I mean, that's like, I'm shocked that it actually gets that high. Yeah. So, and you know, those slingshot rides where you like, you're like down on the ground and then they release uh-huh. you and you like shoot up into the air. That is between three and five Gs. Okay. And people pass out on those all the time. Yes. People do pass out on those. It's really funny to watch the videos because people are like, ah, and then they just go limp. <laughs> yeah. So just to give you a frame of reference. So, you know, when they're doing this, they briefly hit 2.3 Gs, which is pretty much like a roller coaster. Yeah. And when they do that, the rate of climb briefly reaches 10,000 feet per minute, which is mind boggling. That's so much. About 90 seconds later, the crew then started to make rudder inputs to the left, then the right, then the left again in three second span, which resulted in lateral loads of negative 0.16 G, 0.34 G, and negative 0.18 G. So they're just like, hitting the rudder left and right, making the tail, like, wag, I guess would be the best way to put it. Wait, so we covered an incident before, and there's actually an animated version on our uh, Aviation Explanation show, but the tail breaks the back of the plane because someone's doing that, right? Right. That was a slightly older plane. This one's newer. I don't know how much input he was giving. I think he wasn't giving it full deflection. I think he was just giving it partial deflection to Uh make it do that. Uh, Still, Shouldn't do that. Don't, yeah. don't, like, no reason to do that. Don't do it. It could be bad. I don't think that the amount of force he was giving were full deflection. So it's not as bad as the aviation explanation uh, incident that we cover, but uh-huh. it's still, there's no, no need for it. Yeah. Then again, after he does those three inputs, he waits 17 seconds and then makes another right rudder input. So they're just kind of messing around, I guess. Yeah. At about 9.32, while the airplane was in level flight at 24,600 feet, 
A third pitch-up maneuver began when the crew moved the control column to 4 degrees nose up, which increased the plane's pitch angle to more than 10 degrees and resulted in vertical load of 1.87 Gs, with the rate of climb reaching 9,000 feet per minute. They're going wild. They're just messing around. It's like, oh, what happened? You know, let's do this. Like the stuff that they can never do with passengers on the plane. You know, they're just kind of messing around doing it. Mm-hmm. The flight plan showed at this point, the cruising altitude would be 33,000 feet. Oh, I was right. That is, <laughs> I knew it was in here somewhere. So yeah, <laughs> there was, they were climbing up to 33,000 feet. But at 935, the captain asked air traffic control permission to climb to 41,000 feet, which is the maximum operating altitude for this plane. They were given permission about 40 seconds later. During their climb from 37,000 to 41,000 feet, the flight data recorder showed the airspeed decreased from 203 knots to 163 knots as the airplane leveled off. And now, yeah, at this point, you know, we're less than 30 minutes from the mm-hmm. from impact. So now there's cockpit voice recorder recordings of this. So, and they asked, like, can we go this high? And they said, sure. Yeah, I mean, they're just asking if the flight level's clear. And yeah, the air traffic control tells them, yeah, I mean, if they want to go that high, sure, why not? It's clear. Okay. But that's the maximum, like, that's the ceiling for this plane. Uh-huh. That, that this plane can only go that high. Do you remember why there's ceilings on planes and why they have, like, maximum altitudes and things like that? Yeah, because the oxygen um, gets too thin and it can't support the plane. And, right? Air's too thin? Right. The air's too thin. It, uh, there's not enough, uh, you know, air going into the engines, not enough, you know, air passing over the wings for lift. So there's, you know, there's a service ceiling. And 41,000 feet is pretty high. You know, usually when you're on a plane... Cruising altitude might be around 35,000 feet. You might get up to 41,000 occasionally in some planes. Uh-huh. Not this plane. This plane's service yeah. is 41,000 feet. This is a smaller plane. Right. So while they're climbing up to 41,000, the cockpit voice recorder records the first officer saying, man, we can do it. 41 it. The airplane leveled off at 41,000 feet. At 9.52, the first officer said, there's 4-1. Oh, my man. Uh-huh. Then he started laughing and said, this is great. Uh yeah. <laughs> As their airplane leveled off at 41,000 feet, the flight data recorder also showed that the autopilot vertical speed mode was engaged during the climb with a commanded vertical speed of 500 feet per minute and that the angle of attack at 41,000 feet was initially 5.7 degrees. So despite everything that we've talked about them doing, you know, the pulling back on the stick and hitting the rudder and everything, what I just said, this is now the most dangerous thing out of everything that I've talked about. Okay. What they've done is... They've told the autopilot, they know we've talked about this before. There's different modes in the autopilot. Uh-huh. It does all kinds of different things depending on what you want to do. They've told the autopilot that they want the plane to climb at 500 feet per minute to get up to 41,000 feet. When a plane is approaching its service ceiling, it needs to climb very slowly because the plane, it, with the vertical speed mode of the autopilot, is going to trade airspeed for altitude. Because it's trying to maintain 500 feet per minute of climb. And when you get close to your ceiling, that might be greater than you should be climbing. You need to climb really slowly. Uh huh. They're putting themselves in a dangerous situation and not realizing it. And then to make matters worse, when they reached their altitude, the captain asked the first officer if he wanted a drink. The first officer said he wants a soda. So the captain gets out of his seat and goes in, you know, into the cabin to get a drink. They actually joke about whether or not the liquor cabinet is locked, but uh, if I remember right, they the first officer actually asks for a Pepsi. You know, so they they're not they're not actually drinking alcohol. Yeah, they're, but they're, they're getting a soda. Yeah. About a minute later, at nine fifty three, the captain said, "Look how high we are." Then a controller at the Kansas City Air Route Traffic Control Center asked the pilots whether they were flying a CRJ two hundred. When the captain confirmed this, the controller said, "I've never seen you guys up at forty one there." Because even the air traffic controller he was looking at a screen and thinking, 
is that a regional jet at 41,000 feet? Yeah. And asks them, are, are you all in a CRJ? And the captain, you know, says, yeah. And then the captain replies, we don't have any passengers on board. So we decided to have a little fun and come on up here. This is actually our service ceiling. A few seconds later, the captain told the first officer, we're losing here. We're going to be coming down in a second here. Three seconds later, the captain then said, this thing ain't going to hold altitude, is it? And the first officer replied with, it can't, man. We cruised up here, but it won't stay. I'm, it's, it's actually unclear whether he said cruised or greased. Um, I think he said cruised. We cruised up here, but it won't stay. Then the captain said, yeah, that's funny. We got up here. It won't stay up here. So they, they, well, they uh, can see something's about to happen, but they're like, huh, that's weird. You know, they're, they're not doing anything about it. At 9.54, the captain contacted the controller and said, looks like we're not even going to be able to stay up here. Look for maybe 390 or 37. So he's asking, can we descend to 39,000 or 37,000? Then the flight data recorder recorded the activation of the stick shaker, and the data showed the airplane's speed decreased to 150 knots, and its angle of attack was 7.5 degrees. Down? Up. Up? Yeah, so it's still nose up, which is causing it to slow down uh-huh. at 41,000 feet. And this is similar to what we talked about with Air France 447 way, way forever ago, where the air is too thin, the angle of attack is too great, and the airspeed is decreasing. So even though the engines may be giving full output, they're still slowing down because it's still kind of pitched up. Yeah. But at this point, why haven't they pitched back down? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I, you know, they, at this point, they've asked air traffic control saying, hey, you know, we're not going to be able to stay up here. You know, let's go down to 39,000 or 37,000, but they're not actually descending yet. I guess maybe they're waiting on permission from the Maybe, but, you know, that might be it. It's, it's, it's hard to speculate. Mm. But, you know, even the captain says it doesn't look like we're going to be able to stay up here. They should see that their speed is decreasing. They should be able to take, you know, matters into their own hand and nose down at this point. Yeah. But, or even just level the nose off, yeah. you know? Honestly, we're probably still in vertical speed mode. I don't know for certain. So it could be that the autopilot was still pitching nose up uh, and they, ha- they hadn't taken manual control back over yet. Oh. If I had to guess, that's probably what, what happened here. Yeah, that sounds like a good guess. Using the internet without ExpressVPNs, like having a first aid kit, but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine. But what if you suddenly get in a horrible accident and there's nothing in your first aid kit to help you stop the bleeding? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, you know, if it's cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, you know, whether that's passwords, financial details, whatever. Uh, it doesn't take much technical knowledge to know how to hack someone. It's just all you need some cheap hardware, you know, probably a smart 12-year-old could do it. Just goes to show how careful you got to be. Uh, and your data is valuable. Hackers make up to $1,000 per person for selling personal info on the dark web. So that's why you need ExpressVPN. It'll create a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data. ExpressVPN is also super secure. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Super easy to use. I use it on tons of devices I have on my desktop. I got it on my laptop. Got it on my uh, tablet. And like I said, it's easy. It's just like one click on the button gets you protected. It works so great you forget it's there. Like I said, I've got it on different devices, and it's uh, it's really like an extra layer of security and uh, peace of mind. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash blackboxdown. You get an extra three months free at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. 
Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode of Black Box Down. Uh, you know, it's the new year. It's a great time to focus on what's most important to you, uh, whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your wellness. HelloFresh is here to help with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get convenience without skipping on quality. Uh, skip a trip to the grocery store, saving you the wait in the long holiday lines, ensuring you don't waste money on excess food. HelloFresh also cuts back on time spent in the kitchen so you can spend it on your other resolutions with meals ready in around 30 minutes or less, plus quick and easy meals, including 20-minute recipes and low prep and easy cleanup options, uh, providing an even faster route to putting food on the table. I love HelloFresh. And, you know, speaking of things that are easy, I just made something the other day, like two days ago. Uh, they had like a one-pot black bean soup. I think the whole thing was four steps. And uh, uh, when it was done, you know, I just had to put it all in a pot, cook it all together, let, let everything get to know each other in the pot a little bit. When it was all done, uh, I got to eat a delicious black bean soup. It was awesome. It was so good. Like I always say, it's like having a little project, in this case, a four-step project. And when I was done, I got to eat the results of that project. Really delicious, really great. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16 and use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16 and that's BlackBoxDown and the number one and the number six. Uh, you get up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. So again, big thank you to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We've got a trailer of our interview with Molly Bloom. She ran infamous underground poker games that were attended by A-listers, mobsters, and eventually landed her in hot water with the FBI and used a lot of the tactics that she taught us here on the show. I went to L.A., got hired by this guy who said, I need you to serve drinks at my poker game. So I'm like, okay, great. But then Ben Affleck walks in the room and Leo DiCaprio and a politician that was very well recognized. And I had this light bulb moment that I just need to control this game because it has this incredible hold over these people. Then the feds got involved. And 10 days later, I get a call in the middle of the night. You need to come out with your hands up. I walk into my hallway. When my eyes adjusted to the high beam flashlights, I saw 17 FBI agents, semi-automatic weapons pointed at me. If you want to learn more about building rapport and generating the type of trust that Molly Bloom needed to run her multi-million dollar operation, check out episode 120 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. So then shortly after that, between 9.54 and 45 seconds, and then 54 seconds, so over the next nine seconds, the flight data recorder recorded three activations of the stick shaker and stick pusher. During the second activation, the fan speeds of the engines and the fuel flow indications began decreasing on both engines. Data showed that at this time, the angle of attack had also increased to 12 degrees. What? So again, remember, this is vertical speed, but this is like, th this is reminding me of that Ajana flight we talked about that crashed in San Francisco, where the autopilot still wants to maintain this vertical speed and it's trade, you know, it's it wants to still climb because it thinks that's what it wants. That's what the pilots want. Mm -hmm. And it's trading speed for it. So even though the stick shaker is activating, the autopilot is still trying to pitch up because it hasn't been deactivated. Oh. Then after the, third time that the stick pusher activates, the pitch angle decreased from 7 degrees up to negative 20 degrees. So that's them. Well, th that's probably a stall Oh, at that point. In the footnotes of the report, it states the stick shaker activates at 150 knots and the stick pusher activates at an airspeed of 142 knots. And, you know, when this happened, there was another, after this, there was another activation of the stick shaker and stick pusher. And even with the stick pusher's activation, the motion of the airplane continued to increase its angle of attack to the maximum measurable value of 27 degrees. So it's, <laughs> so what happens is the pitch angle increases again to 29 degrees. So even though the stick pusher is pushing it down, the pitch angle keeps coming back up 
it goes from seven degrees up to 20 degrees down, back to 29 degrees up. And at that point, they totally enter a stall. They're stalled now. The airplane begins a left rolling motion, which reaches 82 degrees left wing down. And the airplane's pitch angle increased to negative 32 degrees. So they're almost rolled entirely on their left side and 32 degrees down. And now both engines flame out. The engines, why, they flame out because of why? Just We're going to get to that. There's the, uh. <laughs> that, that, that. That's a whole other thing. Because it seems like they're at such a high altitude that if they're stalling, they have plenty of like air to just go down and pick up speed and be fine. Right. Stalls are not great, but they're really dangerous at low altitude. These guys are at 41,000 feet. There's plenty of time to just nose down, increase your speed, and get out of it. But their engines have flamed out. <laughs> so uh, even with the engines out, though, you know, they're at 41,000 feet. The plane should glide a That's what I was thinking. Distance. I was like, even without the engines, if they, if they can recover from the stall and just, like, glide, right? I mean... Right. Like we talked about the Gimli glider, which was... Was that our first episode? It might have been our first episode. You know, it's a plane that loses its engines and... They still glide and land at an abandoned airport. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a huge range that they should be able to glide to. Anyway, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. We're in the moment here. Airplane okay. stalled. It's rolling, pitching down. Engines have flamed out. 9.55 in six seconds, the captain told air traffic control, declaring emergency, stand by. During the next 14 seconds, the flight crew made several control column, control wheel, and rudder inputs and recovered the airplane from upset at an altitude of 34,000 feet. So they stalled. They lost 7,000 feet of altitude, but they recover at 34,000 uh -huh. feet. During the recovery, both of the engine's N1 fan speed indications continued to decrease, and the fuel flow indication was at zero. So they recover. The plane's, you know, correct in the correct orientation, but the engines are still off. Mm. Both of them. That's an important note. Both engines yeah. are out. The controller told the pilots to descend and maintain an altitude of 24,000 feet, which the captain acknowledged. At 9.55 and 20 seconds, the flight data recorder stopped recording because of loss of normal AC power to the airplane. Ugh. The cockpit voice recorder, however, had a different power source and continued recording. The last N2 core speeds recorded by the flight data recorder were 46% for number one engine and 51% for the number two engine. So it's spooling down. You know, it's not producing thrust and the core speed of the engine is decreasing. The pilots realized they had a double engine failure and mm -hmm. began performing the double engine failure checklist which required them to maintain 240 knots until they were ready to initiate the procedures. The checklist indicated that if the airplane were at or below 21,000 feet and above 13,000 feet, pilots should relight the engines using windmill restart procedure, which required an airspeed of at least 300 knots. So mm -hmm. like a windmill, so... Okay, yeah. They go down and use speed to kind of like start the engines with that, with right. the wind. Right, exactly. The If they get to 300 knots, then the turbine should start turning because of the wind, and then they can initiate a restart that way. The procedure indicate an altitude loss of 5,000 feet could be expected when accelerating from 240 to 300 knots. So it's, you know, it's telling them, you're going to have to dive a bit, you're going to have to go, you know, to decrease mm -hmm. your angle of attack, to increase your speed, and, you know, it should windmill, and uh, it should restart. And like we said, yeah, it just provides that rotational energy to turn the engine's core. That's cool. I didn't know I could do that. Yeah. There's other ways to do it, too. So, for example, another way would be to use the APU, the auxiliary power unit, to help restart the engines. And 
at 9.59, the APU began supplying power to the airplane and the flight data recorder resumed operation at this point. Okay. The flight data recorder data showed that the N1 indications continued to decrease and the N2 indications were at zero. So it's it's a little complicated. I, I, I'm not entirely positive on it. Again, I'm not a pilot. I, uh, I don't know how these things work. I believe N1 is a measurement of your thrust and N2 is like your internal core speed of your en- engine. So their thrust is continuing to decrease and their core isn't moving at all. Mm. The data showed the airplane was at an altitude of 29,200 feet and its airspeed was 178 knots. Which is not nearly fast enough. They didn't do the windmill thing, huh? Right. So at 10 p.m., the captain tells the first officer, increase the airspeed to above 300 knots. Because like we said, that's what, it, that's what it should be. And the first officer acknowledges it. The airplane pitches down negative 4.4 degrees and accelerates 200 knots. But then during the next 20 seconds, the airplane leveled off and the airspeed remained at 200 knots. Were they, did they get af- afraid? If I had to guess, yes. The captain then told the first officer again, get the speed up and the airplane pitched down negative 7.5 degrees and the speed increased to 236 knots. But again, over the next 22 seconds, the airspeed decreased (sighs) back to 200 knots. So, I mean, it's scary, right? Your engines aren't working and to get them to restart, you have to pitch down, which (laughs) is terrifying. Yeah. And and you're like, the first (sighs) officer starts doing it, but then, you know, I guess loses his nerve and then pulls back. But see, now they're just... Losing altitude. Right. Now, yeah. Now now it's pointless. Now you're just losing altitude. Now you're not getting anything out of this. You, they, they need to be trading altitude for airspeed here. If they're not, like now, like you said, they're just losing altitude. They're, they're not getting their airspeed. Well, and, but at some point, should they not do the APU restart then? Right. Which is exactly what they start doing at this point. Okay. So just before 10.02, the captain says, we're not getting any N2 at all. We're going to have to go to 13,000 feet. We're going to use the APU bleed air restart procedure. So then he continues the checklist, which indicated that they maintain between 170 and 190 knots until ready to initiate the APU procedure. So you're right. The captain knows we're not getting the speed we need, so let's do the APU restart. Or I should say, let's restart using the APU. Mm -hmm. At 10.03, the air traffic controller reaches back out to them to ask them what the nature of their emergency is. Because remember, they've just declared an emergency. They haven't Mm -hmm. really said anything else. Air traffic control gives them time to do what they need to do. Air traffic control is going to assume that they're busy. But now, you know, air traffic control is like, hey, what's going on? The crew tells air traffic control that they had an engine failure and they were descending to start our other engine. So that's just a flat out lie. Yeah. Is he trying to cover up the fact that both engines went out? Yeah. But why? <laughs> why would, <laughs> the, the only thing I can think is that they're trying to cover up the fact that they were joyriding. Yeah. And the controller responds to them saying, understand controlled flight on a single engine right now. Then they don't correct them. So they are intentionally are trying to mislead air traffic control now. Yeah, because they're like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. And then over the next several minutes, the crew attempted four APU-assisted engine restarts, but the N2 speed, which is like the core of the engine, remained at zero. Why? Oh, the, the, we're, we'll, we're, we'll get to that, Chris. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the mysteries. Because, right, they're doing their checklists. You know, obviously, they didn't do the windmill restart checklist correctly. But if they're doing their APU-assisted restart, they're running through the checklist. It's not restarting. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. At 10.06, the controller asked the flight crew members if they wanted to land. And the captain told him, just stand by right now. We're going to start this other engine and see if everything's okay. He's lying. Again. He's committed. Again, yeah. He's lying. The controller then told him that the Jefferson City Airport was ahead of them. And the captain acknowledged this. When this emergency first started and they were you know, at 41,000 feet and they lost their engines... 
there were six different airports that were within range of them that they could have landed at that were uh-huh. fine for their, this type of plane. They could have glided to, right? Right. By the time they're at 20,000 feet, there are four airports that they can land at uh-huh. that are totally reachable for them to glide to. But you see, you know, they're, they're losing altitude. So as they're losing altitude, doing all this stuff, you know, the, their window of the range that they have is getting smaller and smaller. Uh-huh. At 10.08, the captain and first officer switched seats back to how they started the flight. And the captain instructed the first officer to tell the controller they needed to go direct to an airport. It's at this point, the first officer informs the controller of the double engine failure and has to go direct to Jefferson City. The captain then commented, any airport. And the first officer told this to the controller and said they were descending at 1,500 feet per minute and they had 9,500 feet left. Oh, that's nine minutes. Well, no, it's about six minutes. Oh, wait. Because if 1,500 feet per minute times six, that's 9,000. And then 500 left over. So it's like six minutes and 20 seconds. Okay, yeah. Your math's better. <laughs> so the controller gave them information for runway 30 at Jefferson City and the flight descended below the clouds at 5,000 feet at 1012. The crew had trouble finding the runway, but about a minute later, the first officer told the controller that he thought he had the approach end of the runway uh, in sight. What time is it? Is it right now? Is it daylight or this, dark? No, this is dark. They took off okay. uh, in the evening and now it's 1012 p.m. Okay. And it's October, so uh, yeah. it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely dark. At 10.14 p.m., the first officer told the captain he had the runway in sight, but the captain questioned the first officer about the location and then said, we're not going to make this. The captain then asked if there was a road, and the radar showed the airplane turned left toward a straight and lit section of highway. So at this point, they know they're not going to make it. They're looking for a place to put the plane down. Like just on a highway. Right. The captain said to keep the gear up because he didn't want to hit any houses. Because, of course, if they put the gear down, that's more drag, and they're going to hurry up descent will increase. At 10.14 and 54 seconds, the ground proximity warning system alert starts sounding. Nine seconds later, the captain said, we're going to hit houses. <laughs> At 10.15 and 06, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of impact and stopped recording one second later. Oh no, they hit houses. The plane crashed into several trees. It damaged a garage, six backyards, and it hit one house. I, was, I should say it damaged one house. But fortunately, everyone on the ground was okay. However, the airplane was destroyed by impact forces and a post-crash fire. And both pilots were killed in the accident. But fortunately, everyone on the ground was okay. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it'd be terrible for random, just by innocent bystanders to get killed. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions already. And you've asked a lot of them already. <laughs> like, you, you, you see a lot of things that are, that are wrong. You know, if they're going through their engine restart procedures, why didn't the engines restart? This is really frustrating. There's a lot that has gone wrong here. I can't overstate... How, what a missed opportunity it was that if they had just acknowledged that they couldn't restart their engines, there were six different runways, six different airports that were within range that they could have landed at. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't know, they became so fixated on trying to restart those engines. Maybe they were in denial, you know, even they weren't admitting to air traffic control that both their engines were out. You know, they, if they had just requested to divert immediately, they could have put this plane down. Yeah. Safely on a runway, I should say. So, you know, this is the United States. You know, a U.S. airline. So, of course, the NTSB carries out this investigation. They saw the three instances of aggressive pitch-up maneuvers and determined they were done intentionally because both of the pilots had experience with this plane. Mm-hmm. The captain had 973 hours and the first officer had 222 hours. The pitch maneuvers were not required for any operational reason or safety consideration and placed the airplane uh, in a flight regime that likely exceeded the airplane's certified flight envelope. So... They were performing maneuvers that were probably outside of 
what the plane is certified to do. Yeah. NTSB does not know why the pilots did this or who first suggested the climb to 41,000 feet, but the cockpit voice recorder showed both pilots were willing to participate in the climb. Both of them showed excitement by reaching this altitude, and the NTSB determined that the climb and the aggressive pitch-up and yaw movements were done for personal reasons. So this kind of like an unofficial thing. Some pilots call it like, I forget what they call it, like the 410 club or the 41,000 club, where they take a plane like this up to its service ceiling. And I think, you know, that's probably what the pilots wanted to do in this case. They wanted to hit the airplane up to the service ceiling. That way they could say that they'd been there before. And, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. So they're... Right. It's just, it, I don't know. It's like, I don't know, it's looking at your car speedometer and thinking, yeah. oh, it goes up to 140 miles an hour, but I've never done 140 miles an hour. I should do that sometime. Yeah, I mean, I that, guess I, I did some... When I was, like, a kid, I'd be like, I wonder how... If I get my car up to 100, you know... Yeah, stupid stuff uh, I, like that. The only thing I can imagine is probably the same kind of mentality where it's like, oh, this plane can go to 41,000 feet. Let's push it all the way up and do that. But of course, at high altitude, you need to be so careful because the air is so thin. Things can go wrong. As you see here, things can go wrong very quickly. You know, it's it's safe to fly at those cruising altitudes if you're, you know, if it's all part of the plan, if it's done correctly. But if you're doing it without any real plan, you're going to get into trouble real quick. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the NTSB discovers that the climb to 41,000 feet was done incorrectly. A climb like this should be done at 250 knots. However, from 37,000 to 41,000 feet, the speed decreased from 203 knots to 163 knots because, like I said earlier, the pilots engaged that vertical speed mode on the autopilot and told it to climb at 500 feet per minute. So... It's disregarding speed, but they, that's what they should be maintaining. They mm -hmm. should be maintaining, like they should maintain the speed of 250 knots and then base their vertical speed off of that, off their airspeed. Yeah. And of course, the airplane could not sustain the required speed while climbing at 500 feet per minute, which resulted in the speed loss. And when the airplane leveled off at 41,000 feet, it was operating in the region of reverse command. So this is a little bit of a complicated concept, the region of reverse command. Um, this means that the available engine thrust cannot overcome the increased induced drag associated with low airspeed. So this is, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm getting my pilot <laughs> license right now. And it, like, this is one of the things, like there's a chart you can look at that shows, you know, speed and induced drag. And it's, it's something that I'm barely wrapping my head around. But when you get to this point, it's like, you need to be careful because your engines aren't as effective and you're creating all this additional drag that the engines are not powerful enough to overcome. Okay, yeah, because it's yeah, yeah, you're you're compensating for the the fact that there's no air. Right. In this case, yes, because they're at high altitude. Yeah, it's just if you're not expecting it and you're not ready for it, it's a uh, it's very dangerous. You have to be very careful. And the flight crew, like I said, they were in the wrong autopilot mode. They should have used autopilot airspeed mode rather than vertical speed mode to prevent the loss of airspeed. They should have told the autopilot, maintain 250 knots, and then, you know, primarily, and then secondarily climb up to 41,000 feet. Instead, they were telling it primarily, climb at 500 feet per minute, and then airspeed secondary. The cockpit voice recorder did not indicate whether the crew consulted the company's altitude and climbability charts before initiating this climb. And this shows the pilots did not understand how airspeed affects airplane performance and did not realize the importance of conducting the climb according to the published charts. 
The safety board concludes that the flight crew's inappropriate use of vertical speed mode during the climb was a misuse of automation that allowed the airplane to reach 41,000 feet in a critically low energy state. So they got up there, but in a very dangerous way that put them in a very precarious position that they were unable to recover from. Mm -hmm. Which is not to say that this was an unrecoverable incident. Yeah. If they had reacted appropriately, this was totally salvageable. You know, even when, you know, after I said, when the captain walks out and gets the, the soda and comes back in, he says, oh, we're losing it. Like he could see, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> you uh -huh. know, if at that point they had jumped into action, this was totally savable. They were still okay at that point. Yeah. Even, I haven't, we haven't gotten into the engines yet. Even once the engines die, if the engines don't restart, if they decide where to put the plane down and begin taking action to go to an airport uh, and land the plane, this is still salvageable. Again, when I'm taking my flight lessons, of course, I'm not flying this kind of plane. I'm flying like a single engine propeller plane, uh -huh. right? My instructor, he, he drills it into my head like an engine loss procedure. And he tells me it's A, B, C, D, E. First thing you do, A, airspeed. You pitch for your best uh, glide speed. That way you get the most glide you can. And you can go as far as, you, as far as possible. That way you can find the best place to put the plane down. And that's what the B is, best field. Where's, where, you, know, you, you immediately identify, where am I putting this plane down? C, you run your checklist. D, you declare an emergency. And then in the kind of planes I fly, E, at 1,000 feet above the ground, you turn everything off. That way the fuel doesn't feed a fire. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so, so you see already right there, even me, uh, you know, taking lessons in a, a little plane, it's, you know, your airspeed and B, where are you going to put the plane down? It's the first two, before you even run checklists, it's the first two things you look at, you start thinking about. Yeah. So during the beginning of the stall, the stick shaker and pusher activated several times and pushed the nose forward automatically. But the crew responded to these by pulling back on the control column each time which caused the pitch angle to increase to its maximum value. So the plane's trying to nose down to avoid the stall, but they're fighting it. They keep pulling back. The stall and upset exposed both engines to inlet airflow disruption conditions that led to an engine stall and a complete loss of engine power. So because they keep pulling back and giving this really high angle of attack, uh -huh. they're disrupting the air that's flowing into the engines. Like the, the wings are blocking the air from going back and getting into the engines, which is why the engines both flame out. Oh, because they're doing the opposite of what the engine's supposed to. It's like th they need that air to... Well, oh, I guess I should explain where the engines are on this plane. I, I haven't talked about that. So we said it's a Bombardier CRJ-200. Uh -huh. When you're picturing a plane, I'm sure you normally think of the engines being under the wing. Uh -huh. On this Bombardier, the two engines are at, on the tail. They're at the back of the plane. Oh, like on the tail, like like up very, very back of the plane? Right. So when the plane's pitching up, the wing is blocking the air from going back into the engines uh -huh. because the angle of the wing is going through the air and disrupting that airflow so yeah. it's not smooth going into the engine. So because that air is disrupted going into the engine and because it's already thin to begin with, uh -huh. the engines aren't able to pull enough air into them, so they both flame out and they both stall. So I never thought about that. So if an engine just doesn't get airflow, it just stops? Yeah, it's like your car, you know. If there's not sufficient air for combustion in your vehicle. Oh, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Right. Yeah. In order to have combustion, you need fuel and you need air. If you don't have air, then there's no oxygen for it to explode and create combustion. It's why, like, if you drive your car into high water, you know, there's then no air is getting into it and uh, <laughs> combustion stops. Of course, there's many other problems yeah. that associate with water, but just a quick example. So one of the memory items for a double engine failure 
is to maintain a speed of 240 knots. But the crew did not achieve this speed when they recovered from the stall, and this caused both engine cores to stop. So they need to maintain the speed. Like It's kind of like the windmilling we talked about, in order to keep things on the inside of the engine moving. But their speed was too low, so the internal core of the engines stopped, which is what caused difficulty relighting them. So like, even if they didn't hit 300, they had to hit 240 just for the engine not to like completely patunku. That's a very technical term, but yes. <laughs> patunku, yeah. So then, like we said, they were supposed to reach a speed of 300 knots to try to windmill yeah. the engine and restart it, but the first officer was not able to reach that speed, and the NTSB believes that his limited experience in the plane might have made him reluctant to command the degree of nose-down attitude that was required to increase the speed to 300 knots. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, yeah, it's nerve-wracking to have to nose down like that. Yeah. At that point, the captain should have taken control of the plane and just done it himself, but he didn't. And because they were not able to reach that speed, the engine cores locked up. So the engine just basically seized up at that point. So when they tried to do their APU engine restarts, it was impossible because since the core wasn't rotating on the inside, they weren't able to recover. So... Was there a point where it's like unrecoverable engines at that point where it's just like the engines are off and they have to just glide to a landing? Yes, they don't know that, but essentially. Eventually, it would be possible to restart these engines once Mm -hmm. they cool down enough, but they don't know that. Oh. I'm going to give the technical explanation here in a second, but the quick and dirty explanation, as like a very casual explanation from as far as I understand is, so, you know, we've talked about this before, that engines get crazy hot when they're operating. Even in a normal flight, they'll get super, super hot, like way hotter than you think. Mm-hmm. So this kind of engine on this plane uh, is a General Electric CF-34 3B1. The maximum red line temperature is uh, 1,650 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 900 degrees Celsius. So uh-huh. really hot, right? It turns out because of the way that they were operating, you know, with this vertical speed mode and everything that they were doing, the number two engine was actually 540 degrees above its maximum red line temperature. The number one engine stayed just below red line, but these engines were running hot. So they're super hot. Then they both flame out. So then they start cooling very quickly. So then like all these hot parts start interacting with cooler parts and they kind of like seize up and fuse together. Oh, Eventually, if the hot parts cool enough, they shrink a little bit, and then they're able to start rotating and moving again. This is why their N2 core speed never got above zero, because everything was locked up and fused together because it was so hot. Eventually, like I said, if given enough time, enough cooling, things start to move again, but they didn't know that. And does windmilling, when you're like they're tilting down on the wind circulation, does that help cool it as well? Yeah, that definitely helped cool it, but they didn't give it enough time. That's why I said that they, in the procedure said, you know, when there's a double flame out, they need to maintain at least 240 knots of speed because they have to keep the core moving so that it doesn't doesn't stop and this Mm. doesn't happen. Right. And they failed to do that. They were going too slow. It stopped moving and then it locked up. Oh. So it turns out that the engines on this plane actually had a history of failing to rotate during in-flight restart attempts, you know, undergoing production acceptance testing at Bombardier. Like I said, this now we're going to... I gave the simple layperson explanation. Now we're, we'll give the technical explanation. Okay. The problem was attributed to interference contact at an air seal in the high-pressure turbine. The lack of core rotation on the accident airplane engine was similar to the instances of core lock experience during testing, except that the accident engines were exposed to more severe thermal distress 
than the engines on the production airplane. Specifically, the accident airplane's engines flamed out from high power and high altitude, whereas the engines installed on the production airplanes were shut down only after their internal temperatures were stabilized. Flameouts at high power and high altitude produce even greater thermal distress because internal temperatures are the hottest at high power settings and the air is colder at high altitudes. The increased thermal shock exacerbates the loss of component clearance and alignment. The safety board concludes that both engines experienced core lock because of the flameout from high power and high altitude, which resulted from the pilot-induced extreme conditions to which the engines were exposed, and the pilot's failure to achieve and maintain the target airspeed of 240 knots, which caused the engine course to stop rotating. So like I said, that's the technical explanation. That's basically what I said before. Everything mm-hmm. was too hot and just kind of locked up. And there's no way for them to know. But again, if they had started planning, mm-hmm. worst case scenario, let's find an airport to divert to and land at, they would yeah. have been okay. But they were trying to cover up their joyride and lying and try- were committed to trying to fix right. things. So well, I'm going to go through the findings uh, of the NTSB here in the report. The captain and first officer were properly certified and qualified under federal regulations. No evidence indicated any medical or behavioral conditions that might have adversely affected their performance during the accident flight. Flight crew fatigue and hypoxia were not factors in this accident. So they mentioned hypoxia because I I didn't actually mention this when we were talking about it. Uh, At one point, they did have to put their oxygen masks on uh, because with the engines out, there's no, the pressurization starts to leak Mm -hmm. out. So they did actually have to briefly have to put their oxygen masks on, but I felt like it was kind of a passing thing. It really, it really didn't yeah, it affect didn't. the rest of the story. Yeah. yeah. The pilot's aggressive pitch up and yaw maneuvers during the ascent and their decision to operate the airplane at its maximum operating altitude were made for personal and not operational reasons. So again, they're just kind of joyriding. The flight crew's inappropriate use of vertical speed mode during the climb was a misuse of automation that allowed the airplane to reach 41,000 feet in a critically low energy state. The improper airspeed during the climb demonstrated that the pilots did not understand how airspeed affects aircraft performance and did not realize the importance of conducting the climb according to the published climb capability charts. So mm-hmm. just, they didn't climb. There's, there's climb charts that they should have consulted. They didn't. Yeah. The upset event exposed both engines to inlet airflow disruption conditions that led to engine stalls and a complete loss of engine power. The pilot's lack of exposure to high-altitude stall recovery techniques contributed to their inappropriate flight control inputs during the upset event. So... Normally, up until this point, the airline had only trained pilots in low-altitude stall recovery because typically that's where you're going to encounter it. Mm -hmm. You know, typically the danger for stalls is when you're coming into land, you know, when you're really slow. Uh, I guess also to a lesser extent when you're taking off. When the airplane is slow and you don't have much altitude to recover, that's when it's most dangerous. So there really wasn't any high-altitude stall recovery training up to this point. The captain did not take the necessary steps to ensure that the first officer achieved the 300 knot or greater airspeed required for the windmill engine restart procedure and then did not demonstrate command authority by taking control of the airplane and accelerating it to at least 300 knots. The first officer's limited experience in the airplane might have contributed to the failed windmill restart attempt because he might have been reluctant to command the degree of nose-down attitude that was required to increase the airplane's airspeed to 300 knots. So like we said, mm-hmm. he probably just couldn't commit to it. Despite their four auxiliary power unit assisted engine restart attempts, the pilots were unable to restart the engines because their cores had locked. Without core rotation, recovery from the double engine failure was not possible. These engines had a history of failing to rotate during in-flight restart attempts on airplanes undergoing production acceptance testing at Bombardier. Both engines experienced core lock because of the flameout from high power and high altitude, which resulted from the pilot-induced extreme conditions to which the engines were exposed 
and the pilot's failure to achieve and maintain the target airspeed of 240 knots, which caused the engine course to stop rotating. Both of these factors were causal to this accident. And just a question, you said that this has a history of locking up this particular plane? This particular engine. Okay, so that engine. Yeah, they had discovered this in testing this plane, but in their testing, it had never happened to this extreme that they pushed it here. Because like I said, they pushed these engines beyond their red line limit. These engines were running hotter. This was a very this was a situation they could not have accounted for, I guess, because this is something that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. So I know you're wondering, like, is this still a problem? We'll, we'll get to that. There's recommendations. <laughs> we're we're going to get to that here in a bit. So we're still on the findings here. Uh, there's two more. The importance of maintaining a minimum airspeed to keep the engine course rotating was not communicated to the pilots in airplane flight manuals. And the pilot's failure to prepare for an emergency landing in a timely manner, including communicating with air traffic controllers immediately after the emergency about the loss of both engines and the availability of landing sites, was a result of their intentional noncompliance with standard operating procedures. And this failure was causal to the accident. So again, they lied. They should have tried to find a place to divert to. And that contributed to this accident. Yeah. I'm going to get to the recommendations in a second, and you'll find out why this isn't scary anymore. <laughs> so don't worry. <laughs> well, to be fair, nothing about this seemed particularly scary other than the fact that there were pilots willing to do it. Right. And the only reason they were doing it is because there were no yeah. passengers on the plane. They thought they could joyride a bit. And, you know, this plane's going to perform very differently with no people and no luggage or cargo or anything on it. You know, it's much more powerful. It's like, how your car might be way slower if you have a bunch of people in it. But mm -hmm. if it's just you, like you accelerate faster, you can go faster. Same thing, but to an extreme with the plane. You know, it's much more, there's much more performance because there's yeah. not any weight holding it down. So the National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this accident were the pilot's unprofessional behavior, deviation from standard operating procedures, and poor airmanship, which resulted in an in-flight emergency from which they were unable to recover, in part because of the pilot's inadequate training, the pilot's failure to prepare for an emergency landing in a timely manner, including communicating with air traffic controllers immediately after the emergency about the loss of both engines and the availability of landing sites, the pilot's improper management of the double engine failure checklist, which allowed the engine course to stop rotating and resulted in the core lock engine condition. Contributing to this accident were the core lock engine condition, which prevented at least one engine from being restarted, and the airplane flight manuals that did not communicate to pilots the importance of maintaining a minimum airspeed to keep the engine cores rotating. Okay, now mm -hmm. for the recommendations. So now we know, we know everything that happened. We know the causes. Yeah. What can be done to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again? That's, you know, the crux of our podcast here. <laughs> Why is aviation so safe? What did we learn from this incident that will prevent this from happening again? So the recommendations. Work with members of the aviation industry to enhance the training syllabus for pilots conducting high-altitude operations in regional jet airplanes. The syllabuses should include methods to ensure that these pilots possess a thorough understanding of the airplane's performance capabilities, limitations, and high-altitude aerodynamics. Next one is determine whether the changes to be made to the high-altitude training syllabuses for regional jet airplanes would also enhance the high-altitude training syllabus for all other transport category jet airplanes, and if so, require these changes be incorporated into syllabuses for these airplanes. So better training about high-altitude operations, not only for this plane, but investigate other planes as well and see if this kind of training would be good for other types of planes as well. Mm -hmm. Require that air carriers provide their pilots with opportunities to practice high-altitude stall recovery techniques in the simulator, during which time the pilots demonstrate their ability to identify and execute the appropriate recovery techniques. So better training 
do high-altitude stall recovery training and simulators. Okay. Convene a multidisciplinary panel of operational, training, and human factor specialists to study and submit a report on methods to improve flight crew familiarity with and response to stick pusher systems and, if warranted, establish training requirements for stick pusher equipped airplanes based on findings of this panel. So, you know, like I said, the stick pusher kept trying to activate, but Mm -hmm. they kept fighting it, you know. So put together a panel to figure out, you know, is this the best way to accomplish this? What can be done to reinforce the fact in people's minds that if the stick pusher activates, let it do its thing. Yeah. Verify that all Canada Air regional jet operators incorporate guidance in their double engine failure checklist that clearly states the airspeeds required during the procedure and require the operators to provide pilots with simulator training on executing the checklist. So again, just be more clear in the checklist. Okay. Yeah. Just change the wording, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the checklist, it was a little vague. You know, it said, <laughs> I mean... In hindsight, in retrospect, you can look at it and say, yeah, it's very clearly says to maintain this minimum airspeed. But if you looked at it at the time, it was like kind of ambiguous. It was just like airspeed 240 knots. It, it didn't say like minimum airspeed of 240 knots. So just kind of like make sure the wording is as clear as it can be. Yeah. Okay. Now, specifically for airplanes equipped with the CF-34-1 or CF-34-3 engines require manufacturers to perform high power, high altitude, sudden engine shutdowns determine the minimum airspeed required to maintain sufficient core rotation, and demonstrate that all methods of in-flight restart can be accomplished when this airspeed is maintained. Ensure that the airplane flight manuals of airplanes equipped with the CF-34-1 or CF-34-3 engines clearly state the minimum airspeed required for engine core rotation and that if this airspeed is not maintained after a high-power, high-altitude sudden engine shutdown, a loss of in-flight restart capability as a result of core lock may occur. So just basically, these pilots didn't know that their core had locked. So basically, yeah. just make it clear that if they don't maintain that airspeed, they're not going to be able to restart their engines. Yeah, they just didn't know what to do. Mm. They knew what to do, but they didn't know how important it was. <laughs> right, they, yeah, they, they, yeah, they just didn't maintain that airspeed, and they didn't realize that not maintaining that airspeed was going to result in their engines just not being able to turn back on. Yeah. And for those airplanes with engines that are found to be susceptible to core lock, require airplane manufacturers to incorporate information into airplane flight manuals that clearly states the potential for core lock. Uh, The procedures, including the minimum airspeed required to prevent this condition from occurring after a sudden engine shutdown, and the resulting loss of in-flight restart capability if this condition were to occur. So again, just like more clearly outline all the negative consequences. So, you know, they just make it more clear what, you know, what will happen if you don't perform the checklist and just educate them. And I think, you know, doing the high altitude stall recovery training and putting all of this stuff in the manuals and teaching the pilots goes a long way to make sure this stuff doesn't happen again. And in fact, after this accident, the airline restricted these kinds of planes to a maximum altitude of flight level 370. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, like, which makes sense. There's no reason for them to have to go any higher than that. You know, let's not have their maximum altitude be the actual physical maximum capability of this plane. You know, give yourself a little bit of a buffer. Yeah, I always assume that and maybe this is bad, like any max warning is they always give a little bit of a buffer. Not that you want to hit it, but, you know, yeah, right? Well, it it, it kind of goes back to our Air Midwest flight where the plane was over the weight limitation. You know, they did mm-hmm. their calculations and they thought they were just under. But no, maximums are maximums. Like there is no there is no leeway. There is no they, they tell you exactly how far can you push this? What is your maximum? It's up to, you know, the pilot or it's up to, you know, in this case, actually, it's probably up to the airline to dictate what they're actually comfortable with yeah. and what they should actually do. 
But of course, you know, usually they're going to defer to the operation manual, the, what, what is the plane rated for. But uh, in this case, I think it's good that they, um, they restrict it to a maximum flight level of 370. So Thomas Palmer, who was a former manager of Pinnacle Airlines training program, said about the crash that it's beyond belief that a professional air crew would act in this manner. Mm. He was just, I think everyone wow. in general was just flabbergasted about this. And the airline changed its training program to include ground school and simulator training for high altitude operations, just like we talked about. And in the year following the accident, each Pinnacle pilot was given simulator training up to flight level 410 and shown what occurred on this flight. Wow. So, I mean, they put every pilot through a simulator showing them this flight. Be like, don't do this. This is what happens, you know? That's really, I think that's really reinforcing and teaching yeah. everyone, you know, the dangers. It seems like, oh, yeah, we can do it. The plane's ready for it. Like, no, maybe you shouldn't do it. And this is why. Mm-hmm. Pinnacle Airlines itself actually was renamed to Endeavor Air in 2013 following uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy restructuring. Because of this? No, I mean, it happens, right? Uh, the, yeah. the whole industry is very turbulent. So, you know, and we've talked <laughs> about this before. Oh, <laughs> no, pun, no pun intended. You know, airline names change all the time and airlines declare Chapter 11 and things always change. But Endeavor Air still runs. Uh, I believe Endeavor Air is still operates. And I think they're headquartered out in Minneapolis. And I think that... They fly uh, for Delta Airlines because Northwest, of course, was uh, absorbed by Delta Airlines some years ago. Okay. So now they they fly for uh, Delta Airlines. But yeah, they're still around. Uh, that's uh, Pinnacle 3701. Like I said at the top, this is an incident I've wanted to talk about for a long time, but I felt, I'm glad we waited, I should say. There's a lot of things that are confusing and weird about this incident. And uh, it's just puzzling why yeah. it even happened in the first place. Well, you did a good job breaking it down, but also, man, it's frustrating those pilots would do that. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said, you know, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast has probably done the same thing in their cars. Like, I wonder how fast I can make my car go, or yeah. you know, people make rash decisions like that sometimes. You know, usually when you're younger, and uh, normally you're not in a you know multi-million dollar plane that's going hundreds of miles an hour, eight miles up in the air when you do that. Yeah, and it's not smart. It's ba- like that's. Yeah, don't do that in your car. Please do yeah, not <laughs> do not try to see how fast you can go. Don't do any of those things. That's that's why teenagers have high insurance <laughs> like prices because they do right. stupid stuff. <laughs> right, absolutely. But that's it for this episode. Uh, again, want to remind you, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We post you know images and uh, stuff that maybe you can't quite picture in this podcast. We'll put on social media. I will say it's not really a ton of photos associated with this one. It's just plain wreckage. But for other episodes, there are, I think, some really interesting things. Uh, check out Black Box Down Aviation Explanation. Let us know if there's any episodes or moments that you'd want to see uh, animated. Yeah. Uh, again, no guarantee that we're going to make more, but uh, I think people have been pretty happy with them. So there's, there's a good chance we might be able to get some more out of it. Yeah. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Like Chris always says, you know, check out our link tree. (laughs) Uh, We have everything in the link tree. It's where Aviation Explanation is. You can buy merchandise uh, to help support this podcast. Uh, And uh, you can check out our YouTube channel, which is where Aviation Explanation is. And all, all of our social media, of course. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Bye. Bye.